Hello and welcome to Policing a Free Society, a podcast series dedicated to the intersection of history and criminal justice in the United States. I am Rob Denning, Associate Dean for History at Southern New Hampshire University's Global Campus. Today I'm speaking again with Jeff Zarnick, the Dean for Criminal Justice. Good morning, Rob. And Jonathan Wesley, the Dean for Philosophy. Good morning. Now, last time we discussed the death of George Floyd and a bit about the protest movements that popped up in response to it. Today, we're going to continue that conversation, but we're going to go in a couple different directions. We will start with the militarization of police forces during the last few decades and possibly centuries. And then we're going to talk about the defund the police argument that has suddenly gone mainstream among protesters, community leaders, and police reformers. Finally, we will all cheer the demise of the TV show Cops. I want to start with one of the things that Jeff mentioned last week when you were talking about the militarization of the police Mm -hmm. and how you saw that as an issue that's kind of facing the criminal justice field today. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Where did, you know, when did this militarization begin? Why did it begin? And then we can talk a little bit about what that looks like. Well, you're looking at the police really formed uh, along the lines of a military model. Okay. You know, we have uniforms, you have protocol, you have ranks, you have, you know, different communication strategies and they're armed. Right, and they have the you know, immense powers over life and death. I remember one of my first instructors was a retired New York State trooper when I went to school, my first foray into college back on Long Island, New York, at State University of New York, Farmingdale. Doctor Harry Babb, and he would always, when he, during his content-related stories, he always said, "Always remember this: the policeman can kill you." And I kind of stuck with him. I said, "You know what? What profession? What other profession in this in in, uh, in the United States can really say that?" That you have the, they have the power of a life and death, uh, which is an immense responsibility. Um, but it's intrinsic too, right? It's part and parcel to the demands and tasks and duties and um, and requirements, because it can be a requirement to have to take someone's life. What, how how would that be best deployed? So when you're looking at the formation of the initial police departments in the United States, it was about what power and control, all right? And it, you know, evolving from the old watch watchman style system you know you're looking at the development of these uh you know these power and control social forces call them police in police departments in philadelphia boston etc uh that were really created by the wealthy rich industrialists who wanted to make sure that the labor pools uh, were held in check when they weren't getting what they wanted etc prison the prison system was absolutely bizarrely you know archaic and medieval and cruel, et cetera, you know, penitence, all those things come together. But the formation of these police departments was well-grounded, well-founded. You look at it really closely aligns with a military structure, right? Um, so, but as it's, it's evolved slowly to some extent, uh, there's been some demilitarization and there's been some amplified militarization. It also depends on who, you, who you're looking at. Oh, I mean, who's who, who you're asking. Some people might say, well, I know my city or my town, they, uh, the chief wants to buy a bear cat, you know, one of those armored vehicles. Unless there's a hostage situation, we can utilize it for that, you know, as a rescue uh, vehicle. Some public have protested. This just happened in Concord, New Hampshire a few years ago, and the chief wanted to buy a bear cat. I said, well, we don't want that kind of military presence rolling down our street when it looks like we're at war, right? So it's the perception of it. Even though it can be a very useful vehicle, we had one here at City of Manchester PD. We kind of laughed at the uh, deputy chief of patrol who bought it at the time from the army, uh, had it repainted and whatnot. And we thought it was just going to sit there as a, like a flower pot in the uh, garage. Um, but then one of our officers was being shot at and was had to duck for cover and he was stuck underneath the car because he would have been shot if he got him, if he left the car, left that cover. And so here comes the this bearcat with a hatch underneath, et cetera. So you get the picture. 
So it does have some utility, but by perception, it looks like heavy militarization. What I look at it, I look at it this way. It's not so much about the militarization or the, the, the fact that it's a pyramid style. I look at the communication issues. I look at how policy is developed and it's usually top down. You know, we know what's best for you relative to the service and the communication standards we have uh, for you on the quote proverbial street. Those people in uniform, uh, a very visible presence, again, armed. You know, you look at the police cars and you, you can see them, you can hear them from a mile away. So it's a very visible militaristic, uh, let's just say, cloak. Right. Um, but unfortunately, what I've seen is, and this is kind of a sidebar in a way, police departments back in the late 60s, when they were failing mon- in the 60s, when they were failed monumentally. Right. Uh, was really the first time they really had to deal with social unrest and crowd control for the most part. Uh, prior to that, it had been relatively quiet. But when the 60s erupted, uh, you know, and erupted on nightly television, six o'clock news. Right. All of a sudden, everyone in the United States was privy to club wielding police officers on horseback, you know, uh, clubbing people in the head. Many of them were, yeah, in fact, minorities, right? And they said, well, this is wrong. This is not what we want from our police here in a free society. That's just ridiculous. And that's when, you know, the government came up with a lot of money and created a fund uh, where, which provided, uh, which allowed officers to go to college for free because the researchers said, you know what, in order to make this particular formation of a particular agency, call it your pyramid style, military, military style, quasi-military style agency work, we have to have people who can think as opposed to swing a club. And so with that evolution, you know, there was at least some ray of hope and it has that has been, but it didn't manifest itself overnight relative to, say, uh, the promotion of good decision making, et cetera. Problem is, so you now, over the last, say, 30, 40, 50 years, you've had a lot of, a lot of officers, even though it's not required, come to the table as applicants with, with a, you know, a higher edu- a degree in higher education, a bachelor's degree. They created criminal justice programs, et cetera. So, you know, thinking, well, this is going to really help us because they're more likely, according to the research, to make uh, better and more ethical decisions, right? They're going to understand the human condition that much more and be able to solve their problems. All right. So now how do you stuff all of that? How do you stuff all those thinkers into a system that hasn't changed? Okay. Where it's top-down management, it's military. The communication is military style. Many departments still deploy saluting, et cetera. Um, and a lot of the thoughts, the critical analysis, the critical thinking, the problem solving gets stymied and stifled because of the shape of the system and the, and the design of communication. Trying to solve that through community policing has worked in many respects. In some places it hasn't because it's still you're still trying to, to me, as a former police officer and as an educator, uh, you're still trying to stuff a round peg in a square hole. Now you say we've created created community policing, but are you taking full advantage of you know this entire uh, you know just entire population of highly educated police officers, many of whom, as it should be known, many of them don't stay beyond five years anyway because of the frustration levels of not being heard, of solving problems out there, not being recognized for the qualitative work that they do. I.e., most a lot of your police departments still measure police to, police work, effective police work by what? Numbers, tickets, and arrests, um, and we can go on a complete. Uh, <clears throat> we can go on a dissertation on that. How well, how little, how little that really means. Well, they operate on numbers. Numbers are intrinsic to budget requests, so you get the picture. Uh, <clears throat> but you have all these wonderfully talented people coming to the table with great backgrounds, edu- you know, great education. All right, um, but they're stymied and they're stifled. 
And, um, you know, uh, more often than not, agendas change for them. Instead of concentrating on effective police service, they're uh, concentrating on getting promoted. Uh, they're concentrating on working overtime. They're concentrating, they're, they're, their energies are directed elsewhere. I worked with all, I mean, that's one of the reasons I went back to school when I was on the job. I had four kids and went back for my master's degree because I was ultimately unequivocally frustrated. Um, and not to den denigrate people at the top, but I was just frustrated with the, the way the communication system works and where there was absolutely little to no growth uh, or, you know, investment on behalf of this tremendous intellectual capital that we had. I saw a lot of police officers leave to go to federal agencies. A lot, I saw a lot of people, police officers do something else while they were on the job. They literally quote, retired on the job because they were frustrated with this militaristic style of communication, which stymied them. Um, I saw police officers become multimillionaires in real estate. I saw police officers go off and start a photography business. I saw police officers go out and become writers, et cetera. Uh, and you think about it, their energies, their focus, the creativity that they brought to other professions while they're still a cop was wasted. So this is, from my perspective, we're seeing a lot of wasted development, a lot of wasted talent, okay? Um, a lot of frustration, you know, a lot of your rank and file are so frustrated with, with the uh, Floyd issue. Uh, on behalf of what that, 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 what that police officer did, because we look at, I look at that guy and I say, my first inclination as crude as it sounds is that guy probably wasn't very well educated. Now was he? Because apparently he didn't understand the human condition and what he was doing. And so it's, it's hard to really describe it as one thing. So under the umbrella of demilitarization of the police, what I like to see is, you know, uh, uh, an, an imitation of what works in industry, what works in business, you know, what, what type of communication standards, what kind of strategies, what kind of say flat organizations can you apply? So you really make the most, you know, of some talented, diverse, creative, intelligent individuals who don't want to be measured uh, by how many tickets they write. I hope that kind of answers it as best I possibly can. I apologize for taking up so much time, but it is a passion of mine. Uh, long story short, I did a lot of total quality management consulting back in the 90s when I first learned about it. I said, wow, we are not making the most out of our people. You know, so saith uh, people like Edwards Deming, et cetera. Thank you. No, I'm glad you I'm glad you went into detail because you know a lot more about this than I do, especially from the inside, the profession perspective. And that kind of brings me to think about one of the reform movements that's been coming out of the protests against the George Floyd uh, death, um, which includes this concept of defunding the police. And at first glance, the idea of defunding the police sounds apocalyptic because, you know, you got to have police force. And and the reality of it is that there are very few people that are saying, you know, to outright eliminate all all police departments, but the general conception that a lot of people are kind of seriously considering when it comes to things like defunding the police in places like Minneapolis and in some other cities also, is the idea that the police, and you may, you'll probably have some insights on this also, Jeff, mm -hmm. but the police in, the, in our current form, the police are responsible for a lot of things that, you know, a police force really should not be responsible for. And so that could be things like uh, mental health counselors, social work, um, educating people on different things, medical professionals. There's a lot of 911 calls, for example, that come in yes. that generate a police response, but are not. But police really aren't the appropriate people to respond to those. Like something that would be more more aligned with a social worker or some sort of educator, and the police are kind of being forced 
by the nature of our response system to engage with a lot of problems that they're really not all that well trained for. You kind of alluded to that a few minutes ago when you were talking about the militarization where people are, where police officers are being asked to do things way outside their specialty and that may not be appropriate to be done with someone who has a gun strapped to their hip that may be more appropriate with somebody else that, that has a different type of training. And so the defund movement seems to be more along the lines of reallocating resources so that police aren't responding to all of these various other problems. Mm -hmm. There can be other professionals that are being, that are responding to those problems. And so I'm, I'm sure you, you, uh, how does that resonate with, do you think with the the criminal justice field and with police officers in general? We, uh, you hit, Oh, Rob, you hit it right on the head. Police departments by design, we really are the, the police departments in this country are severely overtaxed and overwhelmed with things that they cannot handle. And what I mean by that, just what you said, I never got, you know, I can tell you right now, 100% of the time when I got called to a problem, say it was a domestic, right? And it was violent, etc. 100% of the time there was substance abuse involved. Okay. 100% of the time there were mental health challenges. 100% of the time there was such a severe level of dysfunction that really literally we could not do anything about, okay? Um, frustrating as it can be, as an example, you know, we would recognize that, hey, this person here, we're going to bring them in for a violent assault on their wife. Uh, the wife says he's on a series of medications, et cetera, for whatever, schizophrenia, just as, a, as an example, and just real life examples, bring them in. And uh, the next challenge, okay, what do we do? Jail is not a necessary, we don't have the facilities, we don't have you know, resources to manage somebody like this who's in severe trouble and distress, did something severely wrong. Uh, we'll end up in criminal court. And we all say, gee whiz, I wish this person had gotten help sooner. I wish that, you know, something could have precluded this, something could have intercepted this. You know, this issue became a police, police problem, but was it originally a mental health issue that we have n- no control over? So we would call the mental health people and say, can you come down and eva- do an evaluation? And they say, well, has the person been drinking? Yes, they have. Well, we can't come. So now we are responsible for the, the safety and well-being and care of a person who may be suicidal, but they have severe problems and police departments aren't really equipped for that. And neither are your jail facilities. You know, um, it's really about a custodial maintenance of people. And like I said, Every single time I went to any particular call, there was some external issue occurring that we did not have any idea it was going to happen. We only got there with the aftermath. Okay. Uh, So many people, we dealt with broken people. I've told this to my son, who's a police officer. And he said, geez, dad, this guy did this and this guy did that and all this. And I said, Jeff, these are, you're dealing with broken people. No one calls 911 to say happy birthday. They call 911 because there's tumult, there's violence, somebody is in fear, and they don't have anyone else to call. All right? So you're absolutely right. We have a system that is not designed for it. It's overwhelmed. Um, You know, when you look at the ratio of police officers to, you know, to to the sitting population in the United States, uh, I think people might be a little shocked. Uh, I can tell you this, the police departments will more often than not do the, all that they can to keep the public in the dark relative to how many people they can actually deploy on the street at any one given time. Um, you know, huge swaths of communities are literally not even patrolled, not even covered. You know, um, people wonder why it may take a police officer so long to get to it. We 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 don't over police. There may be some over over-poli- policing in certain areas, no question about it. Um 
but you know, with 330 million people plus, and what a couple million police officers out there, and law enforcement and associated uh, affiliations with other industries, whatever professions, uh, we don't have a lot of people. So the the, the country's growing. The problems have grown monumentally, um, and yet um, we haven't really. I think we've had a very difficult time making that adjustment. Money isn't always going to do it. Deployment of personnel, additional personnel may not always do it because, again, you only call 911 after something has happened, right? Um, and then we get there and try to pick up the pieces. We don't know what's going on uh, and uh, what's what's happening with this person, what the history is. We find out later on, um, you know, we don't know. So, I, again, just in simple terms, yes, I think the police are overwhelmed in this country trying to manage problems that they just aren't equipped to do. And, and that really is at the fo- the core of the kind of defund the police movement. And, uh, you know, the title defund the police can be terrifying because we're, nobody's advocating a return to anarchy. It's just more of a reallocation of resources to uh, to bring policing back to dealing with crime, but also redirecting some of the money to deal with the larger societal problems uh, that that you're talking about. So things like it's like, I, for example, I was look last night I was looking at the. Um, the 2020 budget uh, operating budget for the city of Columbus, Ohio. So I, I live on the suburbs of, of Columbus. So I was just looking at Columbus, for example, and this is, you know, one city out of a thousand in the U S but, uh, but I did notice that when I was looking at the budget, the total budget was $965 million, which is, you know, just shy of a billion dollars. Uh, the public safety part of that is almost 650 million of that. So almost two thirds of that budget is public safety, which is lumping together administration, police and fire, basically. And, um, and so it, it, on the one hand, it's police are being asked to do a lot there. Are, it's a huge part of the budget. And so the thinking seems to be, you know, if we can reduce the responsibilities of the police, reallocate that to other professional services, we can then kind of redistribute some of that money a bit to those other uh, services uh, and then maybe alleviate some of the societal problems that you're talking about that are kind of surrounding everything. Because, yeah, when you're when the police get there, you know, income inequality, um, all of that stuff has already taken its toll. And so there needs to be a way to try to address that stuff a bit more proactively, hopefully, in order to prevent some of the calls that are being made to police. And maybe that would be a good way to decrease um, violence. Uh, Jonathan, I'm wondering if you have any perspective on any of that. Um, yeah, so I just literally wrote a note down <laughs> uh, that I want to share, right? Because there's, there's a few things I actually want to connect back to. But overall, as, it, as you talk about the uh, budget, I wrote down government officials would need to care about the people first in order to reallocate funds. Um, I know that's a strong statement, but it's a very true statement, even to what Jeff was sharing about, you know, the police are called for every single thing. <laughs> um, but also when you look into the human services field, you know, the social workers, et cetera, et cetera, who are also underpaid and overworked, um, have a lot of individuals who can quickly respond when they have caseloads that are of the masses, right? Um, and then there's no proper way of checks and balances or to keep people in because you burn out so fast. So that's kind of what I wanted to lift as it relates to the the connection with the the people side of it. Um, I also wanted to go back kind of really quickly, if I can, um, about the policing aspect 
in communities. So I know Jeff, you know, you were sharing about um, sharing about that aspect, but I, you know, I wanted to lift here that there has historically been and consistently happens where there is an over policing of communities where black and brown people are present. So it's like, you know, how from from that perspective, right, since we're contextualizing this based on the current events, mm-hmm. um, you know, how do we really combat and address that piece of it? So while there are so many other fires happening everywhere else, where police are being called to do this and to do that, and it would be beneficial for the police, um, for the the police system to work with human service professionals, so that maybe it's the both and who can maybe come out uh, and assess the situation, especially when it comes down to mental health and all those other aspects, right? Where you would need a licensed practitioner there to diagnose it and to work through. Um, but the over policing of Black and Brown communities is often very triggering. Um, and it's just what's kind of expected as the norm, right? Especially in inner cities uh, where seeing the police, hearing the sirens becomes. Rob, I can speak to that. I know what he's, he's talking about. You know, it's historically police have been deployed to poverty stricken areas. Okay. Um, for whatever reason, you know, call it the kind of a Brahmin mentality, social control theory, those people living in communities that want to be, you know, kept safe per se, right, from the poor masses, right? Um, the deployment is always concentrated on, quote, the inner cities, always has. And that also coincides with statistics relating to arrests. Back in the 20s and 30s, 40s, when the, a lot of the inner cities were populated predominantly by white or Caucasian immigrants from Europe, et cetera, uh, and they were in poverty-stricken areas, 80% of your prison population were white. So it is, is it about color? I'm sure it is at times, there's no question about it, but also it's about poverty. It's about, you know, uh, society's view of poverty. Uh, we've always looked at, you think about it, there always has been that kind of look down the nose, you know, you are, uh, right. And that has been a long standing, say, deployment strategy policy, not for every single department. It wouldn't be fair of me to say that. But I know from my own experience, yes, that's, uh, it's an old, I want to say it's, an old philosophy that was, you know, brought together at some point way back uh, by those people in control, right? Um, it's it's maybe surprising to some people that police departments really do respond to, and they are controlled largely by the power brokers in the community, and they largely dictate the level of response, volume of inter- interaction, etc. That they are willing to tolerate. Every single town and city has its own d- different philosophy of personality about how police should be applied and deployed. Um, but there is naturally a disdain and a resistance to those people who are marginalized, i.e. that are firmly ensconced in poverty and a lack of economic opportunity and all the other associated ills and maladies that you'll see in these areas. And, you know, so deployment has been a problem. I'll say a problem that has led to over-policing. And when you have over-policing, naturally, what are you going to have? Statistically, you're going to have a high rate of interaction. Okay. You have people that are in despair. You have drug abuse and substance abuse, and naturally going to have your associated problems there, which lead to, unfortunately, you know, maybe some off times and overuse of 911. Uh, and the police are called, whether they like it or not, to some of these episodes that have some correlation deeply or at least peripherally to the larger societal ills in that area that the police don't 
can't do really anything about. They can try. Like I was telling you earlier, John, I did all I could with a great team of other police officers and civilians and we created the PAL program, the Police Athletic League, because we know that, you know, we're not going to arrest our way out of this and there's only going to create more animus. No one likes to get arrested. I don't like to get stopped by the police. I'll give you a little sidebar. I had, when I was on the, was on the mountain bikes in, in, in the predominantly downtown area where we had, uh, you know, Spanish markets, bodegas, I really wanted to learn Spanish and I certainly love the food. And then I used to go to the stores and they taught me Spanish. And then one of them uh, gave me one of those Dominican emblem flags, which I hung from my rearview mirror, my Volkswagen Jetta. I lived in a smaller town outside the city and I used to get stopped every week for nothing. All right. For nothing. I knew what was going on. So the, all these things are going on at the same time. And it leads to what Jonathan was saying. He's absolutely right. You know, you have this over policing, but unfortunately, you know, the police officers are not the, the right people to solve these ills, which have a lot of uh, precursor elements to them. So great point, John. Thank you. Yeah. And I was reading an, an article just this morning or last night, I forget exactly when it was, that was talking about kind of the history of policing in areas uh, of poverty, poverty stricken areas of town. And there was a, there, there's been a long history in, you know, in American cities where generally, even if people don't live in a poverty stricken area, a lot of people will develop their criminal enterprises, whatever you want to call it, in, in those areas. And so what, what tends to happen is the example that I was reading was prohibition in the 1930s. Um, all of the illegal stills and speakeasies and all of the ways that people use to violate prohibition, most of those activities were concentrated in black areas of town, more poverty stricken areas of town which then artificially inflates the crime rates in those areas because you've got a lot of people, you know, if that's where people are concentrating their criminal activity because they think they might be able to get away with it or because there's more, I don't know, there's more workspace to do stuff in. I don't know. For, for whatever reason, people went to those areas to engage in those enterprises. As police bust those enterprises, that inflates the crime rates for other areas. So it's not, crime rates don't always necessarily reflect the people that live in that area, they tend to reflect the people that are committing crimes in that area. And so that's one of the things I think that's kind of contributed to this in the long run is that a lot of crime statistics are artificially inflated. If you're looking for the people who live in those areas, it's, it's oftentimes outsiders that are committing crimes in those areas also. But this is nothing new, Rob and John, let me tell you, you know, no one, you know, we, it goes back to the title of the policing of free society. All right. And then everything else just kind of drips out from underneath that. But we've it's always been there's always been a fractious relationship in the lower in the poverty stricken communities throughout the history of the United States. And I'll give you a quick I'm going to give you a quick encapsulated story. You guys ready? And then you're going to tell me when you think it happened. All right. We have a young police officer in South Boston. He's walking. He's on foot patrol. OK. He's walking over by West Broadway and he hears a here's a fight going on between D and E streets. There's a big argument going on in a bar, 342 West Broadway, really physical. A couple of patrons outside fighting. A lot of people standing around. Pop punches are flying, uh, kicks are flying, the whole shebang. Now, his job is to what? Get in there. He's got to break that fight up. He can't stand by or walk by. That would be neglect of duty, right? You get fired for that. So he goes to intervene, and the crowd turns on him. Go home. We, we don't want you. You don't belong here. We'll, we'll send you if we want you. He tries to break up the fight, grabs the two the two fighters, you know, they're punching away, tries to pull them away. Next thing you know, this young officer here is 
stopped in his tracks by a wall of men blocking his way, not letting him through. They started getting around him, and now they beat him silly, then dragged his body into the middle of the street. Knocked him out. A mob of angry people kicked and punched and hooted and hollered and had a great time. When did that happen? Oh, God. <laughs> in Boston? Um, I could have, God, in pretty much any time period, I imagine, but I, I don't know what specific. Uh, Jonathan, I'll let you take a guess if you like. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of echoing your sentiments. Um. <laughs> All right. Drum, the drum roll is in. That was 1903. And it was in a poor section of Boston. Oh, oh yeah. The the public services in, I mean, the, the, you, we don't have, you know, this kind of going off, off tangent here. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've done some reading on the various formulations of public services uh, throughout the American history and back in the, you know, the mid 19th or mid 19th century, I mean, it's kind of amazing. They would have, um, this is going completely off tangent, but just as, you know, just as some interesting examples, there were, uh, instances where there would be rival fire department companies because back in the day they were paid by people rather than paid by governments. And so people, so, you know, fire companies would be rivals for trying to get <laughs> customers and all of that. And so there were all these instances where fire departments would literally have battles in the streets over who gets what turf and what, what territory and all of that. <laughs> and there were some instances of, of yeah. police departments having that uh, that type of relationship also where, and that's one of the reasons that we have so much funding for public services now is to try to prevent that type of stuff from happening. But as we've been talking about this entire episode, the, you know, how, how that develops and how that plays out when you've got these as public services uh, is, is difficult. And that's going to be one of the themes of, you know, this series going forward is kind of the relationship between the police and the people, because you've got the constitutional rights of people, but they're also, but people are also kind of giving up their, some of their constitutional rights in order to have a police force there to protect them from internal and external threats. Um, we, I don't think we need to go into social contract theory and all that stuff right now. Maybe we'll do that next time. But it's something that is kind of at the core of all of this is that there's police officers that are being given certain powers over the rest of uh, rest of the of, of Americans. Uh, like like Jeff mentioned at the beginning of all of this, uh, law enforcement is one of the few industries or you know careers where shooting and killing people is you know part of can be part of the job and. The idea that Americans are giving up some of their liberties to the police officers to in order to protect them is kind of at the core of all of this, because then it becomes a balance of how many, you know, at what point should police officers be pushing back and, and pushing on other constitutional rights? And that's going to be an ongoing uh, question. And I think the, the the defund movement that we've been kind of talking about here is really kind of a manifestation of all of that, is that how do we reallocate resources? Um there were, as, as I mentioned before, I mean, I was looking into it a little bit also, and there, there have been instances where police departments have been defunded. Um, usually it's for budget purposes uh, because, you know, a town goes broke and so they have to figure out some other way to pay for policing. And so maybe the town would unincorporate and the county sheriff would take over instead of a city police department or something like that. But I did find one instance in Camden, New Jersey, where the police department was completely dissolved in 2012 mm -hmm. uh, because of corruption within the police department or what was perceived as, as corruption. There was uh, very ineffective um, campaigns against drug use. Uh, there was a high murder rate. There were all kinds of instances of perjury and, and 
and supposed evidence being planted on suspects. Jeff, you've, you've, I'm sure you've heard of the, mm -hmm. of, of this situation. Yes. Uh, and the, the police department was completely demolished <laughs> in 2012. Yep. It was then rebuilt kind of from the ground up. They, they ended up, had, they ended up rehiring at least some of the police officers that were there before, mm -hmm. but it was rebuilt using this new kind of community orienting police model. And, and Jeff, I'm sure you've heard something about that. So do, what, what, what types of reforms can we see if we, if, if, you know, cities were, were to start doing this type of reform. Yeah, there's a larger picture here, too. And it's funny, you may find this hard to believe, but many police officers that are out there identify with the people that they are, you know, in contact with on a daily basis. Um, historically, police officers have not made a lot of money. A lot, of, I mean, there was a time when I was on the job, quite frank, uh, we had a budget freeze. There was a hiring uh, salary freeze for seven years. And uh, there was a good percentage of us on the job that qualified for food stamps. Uh, and I, I already had, I had like 12, 15 years on the job, you know, and um, people were losing their homes. So, you know, I, you think about it, a lot of my issues were directly aligned with those people I was working with. So what happens? You know, you also have marginalization of police officers. And then, you know what they say? No one cares. They want to pay me $300 a week. I can barely feed my family. Guess what I'm going to do? You know, I'm going to go on the pad. I'm going to go on the take. You know, I'm going to work with drug gangs. I'm going to, you know, and you do see that happen. They slip to the other side and it doesn't always have to be salary, but it's also about the fact that there's just little to no support on both sides of the fence. They're caught in the middle and a lot of them have made the wrong decision. We saw that in the, in the 70s and 80s and 90s in, in New York City. You know, uh, what happens? They, they fall away. They give in to the other, quote, the other side, but they, they say, you know what? Uh, I'm not, I'm not treated any. I'm not, you know, uh, I'm, I'm treated on the same level, same consideration, level of respect as the, uh, say, the crooks in the town. So there's a bigger problem there. I think it even happened in Chelsea. Uh, but it's the right thing to do. You, you know, if you've got a department that's completely been, you know, it's, it's, it's toxified like that, you've got to do something. Uh, clean house. So as I was reading about the Camden example, they were talking about this new department that was being built in 2013, and they inaugurated this new form of what they're calling community-orienting policing, where there's more of a partnership with other services uh, like social work and all of that. They emphasize de-escalation techniques. Um, they try to reiterate that deadly force should be always be the last option, trying to increase diversity within uh, the, the police forces. One of the kind of the small details that I thought was interesting is that all new officers are required to introduce themselves to all citizens in the area that they're going to be patrolling, mm -hmm. which I thought was a interesting. I mean, that, you know, Camden is a relatively small town compared to, say, Columbus or Minneapolis. Uh, but so I don't know how realistic that is on a larger scale, but it's it's an interesting idea that if you force force people to come into contact with each other, introduce themselves in a situation that doesn't have the tense reality of a 911 call, then maybe that's a way to kind of help soften the relationship a bit between locals and the police. It's not going to solve everything, obviously. And then, and even people in Camden will say that, you know, not all problems have been solved because there are still some larger uh, systemic issues like poverty and income inequality, all mm -hmm. that still exists. I mean, you know, it, look, changing the police force in one town isn't going to fix all of those larger structural problems that are still plaguing a lot of the United States, but, you know, it's something. And so it'll be interesting to see as this defunding kind of conversation goes forward, it'll be interesting to see what examples people start kind of holding up as, you know, exemplars for 
for some of these changes. I don't know if it'll be Camden or some other ones, but uh, I think this should be an interesting conversation going forward. And I'm kind of looking forward to seeing this defunding conversation because uh, once you get past the inflammatory language and the kind of the, the, the knee jerk response that a lot of people have to it, I think there's a lot of substance there that can be, that, that should be discussed. So I'm kind of looking forward to it myself. I agree. And Rob, if I could add for a quick moment, because um, I'm from Jersey. So Camden had a very, very high crime rates. Uh, so it was like Camden and Newark, mm. which is where I'm from, um, born and raised. So I have friends from Camden um, who always speak of the ills of the city in reference to the correct. And this is before the 2012. I think you mentioned like that that breakdown there. So, um, but still, like they you used to always talk about the struggles of Camden as the, you know, inner city and um, just the struggles with the police. And um, I think like to your point, Jeff, as you were saying, you know, kind of recognizing or being kind of empathetic with the communities that the police are serving, that did not prove to be as, you know, consistent for everyone from the representation uh, that I got from Camden about the challenges within the city, right? Um, And how there was so much corruption because as it related to drugs and people selling drugs, there were police officers who were in with the drug yeah. dealers, wow. right? So it was a whole scheme of stuff where, but to your point though, Jeff, because, you know, hey, we don't make enough money. This is another way to make money. You, you know, I scratch her back, you scratch mine. Um, but when it came down to it, the citizens uh, were the ones who often got the short end of the stitch. It was, you know, pretty unfair. And I'm sure, you know, those things still happen across cities, especially as we look at the transportation of drugs in and out of communities um, of color, which is t- typically, from that research perspective, has been brought in by the police, by those who are supposed to be uh, protecting the, the area. Um, yep. So... I just kind of wanted to lift that from being a Jersey kid <laughs> um, and kind of sharing how we used to have these stories and these talks about kind of like a Camden versus Nook. Like we used to always say, well, Nook is worse than Camden. No, Camden is worse <laughs> than Nook because we got, you know, yeah. <laughs> it, it was it was this rival rivalry. It was a loving rivalry in whatever ways that can be loving. Um, now that I'm thinking about it, using those terms together. But you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So, yeah, we had those. Um, those conversations. And part of that too, Jonathan, there was, a, there was a chief of police in Connecticut many years ago who recognized that problem. And, you know, he said, basically what I have is I got a bunch of white warriors that descend in on the city from the suburbs and wreak havoc on the sitting population. So that's got to change. You know, unfortunately, there is a sport style of mentality to policing for a lot of police officers. You know, they they like the adrenaline, right, of kicking in a door. They like, you know, putting on the helmet and, you know, joining the SWAT team and all that sort of thing. I'm not saying you don't need those because there are you have your very violent, volatile situations and somebody's got to take control of that. But that should be just it really at the end of the day is only a small percentage of what you really should at what you're really doing. Um, you know, they say statistically 5% of an officer's time at best during their eight hour shift is spent quote enforcing the law. So my thing was, well, what are you doing the other 95% of the time? 
Well, if you're not answering calls, you should be breaking bread. You should be going into the stores of bodegas. You should be stopping by the barbecue, saying, hi, how you doing? Introduce yourself, give me your card, get on the first name basis with people if, in fact, you do have the time to do those things, right? But that's not glamorous, and that doesn't really pump up the volume relative to adrenaline and war stories and all that. That, that kind of culture of thinking has to, has to go. It really, really does. You know, so when I talk about demilitarization. It also has to do with the mentality that you are not a warrior, that you are an activist. You are a community problem solver. You are you integrate yourself with the people that you are trying to help, you know, and and get rid of the numbers, you know, and and, and like I said, dismiss the notion that policing comes uh, with biceps. Uh, you know, I. I one show that used to, really drove me crazy. I don't watch cop shows, I, uh, which shouldn't be any surprise. I just don't. One of them was that show Cops. And it seemed to me every time I saw it, and I'll say this is empirical, but every time I watched I, I looked at that show for the brief few minutes. It was always some six foot five police officer with bulging biceps and a crew cut chasing some somebody over a fence. It was all about the action, the sport of policing. I said, you know what? This is this is not what we do the other ninety-five percent of the time. But what? Look how it was glamorized, right? Look how it was glorified. And I showed my son. I said, don't do that. Don't think that's what policing is all about. When they went out with their cameras, John, Rob, you know, where, where do you think they went? Right? Do you think they went to the rolling green hills of a suburb? No, not at all. They rode with me, and they rode with other people on my job. And they said, go stop that guy. Go do this. Go. They wanted to instigate contact for the sake of the cameras, right? So, you know, the glorification, glamorization of that, that has to really be addressed too as well to destroy that culture of thinking. It just doesn't work. <laughs> no, but I think uh, just as another, <laughs> you may be glad to hear this then because just last night I read that uh, Cops, the TV show, finally got uh, canceled Good. Uh, yesterday because of partially, or, or you know, they, of course, they're making the linkage to the George, George Floyd uh, protests and all of that. And, right. uh, but, but yeah, so that I suppose is one more demonstration that things hopefully are changing. <laughs> you know, if, if Cops is no longer welcome on TV, then maybe that says something broader about about this overall situation and where we're going from here. So what drives a lot of cops crazy, okay, is the, you know, is the fact that the Floyd thing, as you know, right, that, that murder, okay, dismissed and destroyed a lot of the day-to-day things that aren't going to make it on television. No glamour in getting a kid a sandwich. There's no glamour in stopping and playing hoop with the kids. There's no glamour, you know, in finding out that, you know, um, a recent immigrant family's heat, been cut, heat was cut off and you got to turn it back on for them. There's no glamour. It's not going to be on the news. It doesn't render itself to an arrest or a stat, you know, but that goes on all the time. All right. You know, helping people, I've given people gas money. You know, I people, I've bought kids shoes. We've all done that, but you know, and it's always behind it. that, that gets wiped out in a day. And that's why a lot of us couldn't stand that cop show because that wasn't, <laughs> that doesn't, that's not effective. That's, that's not, that doesn't work. It's just drama. So thanks for letting me say that. Yeah. And if I can connect really quick to that as well, like I saw that as well, um, Rob and some of the other changes that these stations are, are, are making, which is really good because it, it does two things. Well, it does more than two things, but it paints a certain picture of all police, right? And it also paints a picture 
of underrepresented communities. You know, while there may be a plethora of, quote, criminals, um, you see the majority on shows like Cops are Black and Brown people. So we're looking at what helps to instill a moral panic. And while this is not our conversation for today, but looking at popular culture and stuff that's those shows like Cops, which have a certain agenda connected to them, if we don't look at the agenda as to why these shows are created, then people will continue to watch them and believe only what is put in front of their face without really getting to know the breadth of the respective cultures, right? So I just kind of lift that as a, a observation. Yep. Oh, yeah, definitely. And so with that, with the uh, cancellation of cops, I think we can call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how you want to link the cancellation of cops with defunding the police, but, you know, whatever. And uh, I think we can uh, call it a day. So thank you for uh, joining me today, Jeff and Jonathan. Oh, thank you, Rob. Thanks, John. Yes, thank you. And thank you all for joining us today. Policing a Free Society is distributed on the Working Historians podcast feed, and you can subscribe to that feed on any podcast app, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Lyceum, SoundCloud, or whatever else you prefer. That way you won't miss any episodes of Policing a Free Society, and you'll get to hear about all the other cool stuff that historians do with their lives. If you have any questions or comments for this podcast, or for any other Working Historians podcast, please send us a message at workinghistorians at gmail.com or through our Twitter feed at Work Historians. For Jeff Zarnack and Jonathan Wesley, I'm Rob Denning. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll talk at you again soon.